following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Today's teaching comes from FIBC Senior Pastor Senior Pastor N. Eric Nielsen. We've been going through the Bible uh, in our Covenant People series, and we've arrived at the book of Leviticus. And uh, it's a two-part series. If you weren't here last week, you'll rem- you won't remember that I mentioned how sometimes when you get to the book of Leviticus, it just seems like a long series of restrictions and prohibitions. And we wonder, what relevance does it have for the Christian in the New Testament age? Um, but in fact, the book of Leviticus does provide for us the earliest pattern for fellowship with God. As I said last week, that the atoning, the atoning sacrifice of the lambs and the bulls that were given in Leviticus is the basis for which fellowship with God is possible. And Leviticus isn't only about the system of sacrifices that makes fellowship with God possible. It is also a list of prohibitions and restrictions because being holy is how to maintain our fellowship with God. God has made us in our image, and we are relational beings because God is relational. We are able and we need to love and to be loved because God is love. Let me ask you to think about your favorite activity, the thing you would do if people wouldn't, they wouldn't have to pay you to do, but your favorite thing that you would ever do that you could do the rest of your life. And now imagine that you have to do that activity alone. See, all of a sudden, it's not that fun anymore, is it? Because we are relational beings, and fellowship with God meets our deepest and greatest need because God has created us. He is our maker, and he made us to be in fellowship with us. And so if the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the basis for our fellowship with him, then a life of holiness, a life of being set apart for for God's use, is the way we maintain our fellowship with him. When I say holiness, many people often associate holiness as this prideful disdain for anyone else who doesn't quite attain to your level of godliness. Too often, holiness becomes a matter of pride. And that's because sin has this way of twisting something that's good and right for us, which is to faithfully live out God's ways, to turn that into something that's self-centered, something that's prideful and arrogant and snobbish and contemptuous. But true and godly pursuit of holiness, that leads to humility. It leads to a compassion for others who may still be struggling with a particular sin, even if you no longer do. And it's necessary, I believe, for every Christian to pursue a life of holiness in order for us to maintain this fellowship with God. He has already set us apart by the blood of Jesus Christ And now we need to live out our set-apartness, our holiness. And so, today, we'll quickly first review what last week's message was about, the need for an atoning sacrifice for sinners. And then, we're going to look at some of the major themes in the second half of the book of Leviticus, okay, which include God's standards for purity. 
And a lot of the book of Leviticus speaks about sexual purity. So the bulk of my message today will be about sexual purity. I'll try to keep this PG-13. I know maybe there's some younger kids in here as well. But that is the bulk of these standards of purity that are in Leviticus chapter 18 and 20, so I'll spend the bulk of my time in that. But secondly, Leviticus isn't only about restrictions, about proscriptions, the things you are not to do. Leviticus is also about prescriptions, the things you are to do. So I've picked out a few of these where God commands His people to actively pursue. And then thirdly, I want to look at the consequences that He gave His people Israel. Um, because God in His love is persistent. His people are not perfect. You and I are also not perfect. But God is nevertheless persistent in His love for us, so He corrects us when we go our wayward ways. And I believe that what you're going to learn today will touch your life in one way or another almost daily. Because fellowship with God is our deepest need. And it is also the source of our greatest pleasure. Everything else that this world can offer falls short of the pleasure of knowing God and having fellowship with our Maker. So the second half of the book of Leviticus is really to describe to God's people what His standard of holiness is. It is to describe to God's people His standard of holiness in order to maintain fellowship with Him. Quick review about last week of what we covered. The atonement as the basis for fellowship. We understood that sin requires a sacrifice. The pattern was set already in Leviticus. And God used the blood of bulls and goats as a type or as a copy of the blood sacrifice that Christ as the Lamb of God would make many centuries later. And we have to understand about the sacrifice for sins is three things that God is, first of all, reluctant to punish sinners. He would not rather that they perish for their sins. Secondly, He is ready to forgive sinners. Because as equally as God is a holy God, He is also a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And thirdly, that God regards as most precious to Him you and I, mankind. And He wants us to have a relationship with Him. And how can fellowship exist between a sinful, guilty, unrighteous person and a holy, perfect, pure God? By a sacrifice that atones for their sins. As Renjit so well put, that the anger, the righteous anger against the sins of God's people was taken by God's own Son. And a sacrifice requires a mediator, so the book of Leviticus describes the priesthood that also Christ would come to be for us. It is all about the establishing of a sacrificial system to make it possible for God to have fellowship with His people, literally to dwell with them. And as I said last week, that for the people of Israel, all of these rules and laws had the message to them that they needed to be unique because they were light and darkness. They had to always be concerned with displaying His likeness in everyday things. You realize that with all of those laws, there was hardly an area of their lives that was not touched by something that God had said about it. They should be constantly aware they have a special relationship. And you and I, as the people of the New Covenant, people of the New Testament, 
It isn't different. We too are God's special people who should be unique, the light in the darkness. We too should always be concerned about displaying His likeness in everyday things. And there should always be a constant awareness that God has something to say about the life that I live today because I am in a special relationship with Him. And one thing that we have to also make clear is that the Christian believer is not pursuing holiness in order to have fellowship with God, in order to be acceptable in His sight. The Christian believer is acceptable in the sight of God because of what Christ has done in His atoning sacrifice. Our pursuit of holiness is because we are holy and set apart for God. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, now we want to be holy because we want to maintain this fellowship with God. The pursuit of holiness comes as a result of what has already happened to us when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Lamb of God who took away our sins. This requirement for holy living can be captured in the book of Leviticus in chapter 18 for the Israelites. Read along with me, if you will. In verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Leviticus chapter 18, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And that chapter ends with, Keep my requirements, in verse 30, and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came, and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. And you might say, okay, well, that's fine. That's for the Old Testament people of Israel. Well, then I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, which I think could be a very a good parallel when the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Christians in Ephesus of exactly this same message that was given through Moses to the people of Israel. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 17, Paul writes to them, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I believe that's an equal parallel to, for us as New Testament people to also pursue holiness just as God's people in the Old Testament did. And chapter 18, as well as chapter 20, reveals to us God's standards for purity, especially sexual purity. You can read that on your own when you get home, hopefully. But it lists several kinds of sexual relations that are forbidden by God. 
And in chapter 20, it lists several consequences for engaging in them. And if you read carefully, you'll notice that Leviticus 18 forbids sexual relations with relatives, like your mother or your stepmother, your siblings, your half-siblings, your in-laws, your parents' siblings, your wife's siblings, your children. It forbids sexual relations with your neighbor's wife, what we would call today an affair. It forbids sexual relations with animals. It forbids sexual relations during your menstrual period. And it forbids same-sex sexual relations. And God says clearly in those chapters that those kinds of sexual relations are wickedness, defiling, detestable, a perversion, and that the people who had engaged in them, they had actually defiled even the land with their practices. So God judges them for it. And the consequences mentioned in Leviticus 20 for many of those acts include death. And the Bible is clear that when God made mankind male and female, that they were told to be fruitful and to multiply. That sex should be between male and female because that is how God invented it and created it. That the one flesh union should be when, and I quote, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. No other context is given in Scripture as God's will except that a man and a wife, male and a female, should enjoy the union of a one flesh sexual union. And God was the one that created the sensation of pleasure. God was the one that created the sensation of excitement, and He designed it to be an intimate bonding experience between male and female, man and wife. And the Bible says that God looked at all of His creation and said it was very good. So it is all healthy and good, resulting in union and reproduction intended to be exclusive between a man and his wife, and it's to be lifelong. Friends, that is God's plan. That is His design. That is His will for sexual relations, and anything that is not according to that plan, God calls it sinful. It is destructive. It is harmful. It will cause pain. It is impure. It is unholy. Now, mankind will try, as we may, to make some of those forbidden relations permissible, or will create a new definition for marriage, or will explain away what God has revealed as prohibitions. But remember this, whenever we choose against God's will anything other than His way, then we must expect that there are going to be consequences, consequences that could be harmful, painful, destructive, even deadly. Now, those were the prohibitions revealed to God's people under the Old Covenant, through Moses. And then we can rightly ask then, well, what about under the New Covenant, the covenant we have through Christ? Well, let's go to the New Covenant that we have through Christ. Let's go to the New Testament to see what it says about marriage and sexual relations. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 is the first place we can look. It says this, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Friends, pure means undefiled, means 100% clean. It means good and right and perfect. And the word for adulterer in the New Testament 
has the word moikeia as its root. It is a type of sexual immorality. It is specifically unfaithfulness in a marriage. The word that is used for sexually immoral is a word with its root in porneia. It is used for every other form of sexual behavior that is not within the design of God as a lifelong one flesh union between a husband and his wife. Now, friends, the New Testament mentions again and again the word for sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Ephesians 5, 5, that those who are immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that is holy, set apart, that you should avoid sexual immorality. The message is the same in the New Testament as in the Old. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the Lord, and therefore the Christian should flee from sexual immorality. So for us to obey those New Testament commands, to pursue this holiness so that we can have fellowship with God or that we can maintain our fellowship with God, is to understand the Old Testament definition of marriage, of what sexual purity in marriage is all about, and all of the variety of sexual acts that the Old Testament defines as immoral are the same as what the New, Test New Testament defines as immoral. God's will is revealed in both the Old and the New Testaments, especially regarding our sexual behavior that's supposed to be holy and pure and right and good, the kind that honors marriage, the one that keeps the marriage bed pure. That is the one flesh union between one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant. So you can't say that it's just a standard from the Old Testament. The Christians, the early Christians, they had a Jewish background rooted in the Old Testament. And they determined, as you'll read in Acts 15, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. See, it was a question of how much of the Old Testament do we apply to the Christians, the Gentiles who are becoming saved and are, uh, that are becoming God's people. And this is what they wrote. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Now, for most of us here today, my guess is that the sexual sins that seem to be most prevalent, most relevant to you and I, the ones that touch us the most, will be at least these four. Pornography, premarital sex, adultery, and same-sex unions. Would you agree with me that that touches so much of our daily lives? We all know someone, or it is ourselves, involved in any one of those sins. These days, there's not a lot of discussion or debate or publicity or news about the question of, is incest wrong or bestiality or child pornography? You will still find people that will defend those even. Now, these days, there's a lot of discussion and debate and publicity and news about same-sex unions and about pornography and about premarital sex and adultery. Now, we can't expect those who have not submitted themselves to God's will to agree with us. They simply have not accepted what the Bible says. But all of us who believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation, those of us who have fellowship with God, through the atonement that He provided, you and I, we must maintain our fellowship with God through the pursuit of holy living. And the definition is given to us here, and it means especially sexual purity. So I ask today, 
How should the Christian respond, first of all, to our own sexual sins, and then secondly, to those of others, those within the church and those outside of the church? Well, again, we turn to the teaching of Scripture regarding the sexual sins in ourselves. Because I think all of us would have to admit that none of us are 100% pure in this particular area of our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.8 says that we are to learn from the example of the Israelites because they suffered God's displeasure. And it says we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Ephesians 5.3, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. How many of us can live up to that standard? Not even a hint. Anyone want to raise their hand? I think all of us can say we are guilty in some way. Not even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, it says, or of greed, because those are improper for God's holy people. And so sexual sins in ourselves should be dealt with in the same way as any other sin that will defile us and make us unholy. We must do everything we can to avoid them and pursue instead righteousness and pure and godly behavior. It isn't just a matter of avoiding sin, it's also pursuing righteousness and purity. Now what about regard, uh, sexual sins among fellow believers? Well, Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians that we ought to be filled with grief over the person who commits sexual immorality among us. But he also says to put them out of your fellowship. He says you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler, because such a man you should not even eat with. Now, that may be difficult for us, but it is clear that we are, as Christians, not only to judge our own sinful behavior, but to also judge those of our brothers and sisters in Christ. To point it out, and Jesus is teaching is similar, we should point it out to a brother in sin. And if they're unwilling to accept it, to bring witnesses to demonstrate that they're unwilling still to change their ways. And only once they are still unwilling after some uh, two or three witnesses have been gathered, then they are to be disassociated. Now regarding sexual sins among the unbelievers, well, Paul here makes a distinction in our response. He says, I don't mean at all the people of this world who are immoral about disassociation. I don't mean at all those who are the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, because in that case you'd have to leave this world. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God will judge those who are outside. So friends, there we have it. And what's very difficult for us to do as Christians, I think you'll agree with me here, is how do we respond to those in the world who do not and who cannot be expected to live by God's standards, how do we make it clear to them that their behavior is not God's will and yet we don't come across as though we have this posture of judgment? Would you agree with me? That's difficult, isn't it? To be friends with them, to know that what they're doing is destructing, destructive to themselves and to let them know that God's will is better but to not do it from a position of, I'm much better at this than you are. It requires an attitude of humility. It requires that we acknowledge that we too sin, maybe in different ways, but we sin nevertheless. And it requires we explain that God is gracious 
He's ready to forgive. He wants something so much better and greater for you than what you are currently going through. For us ourselves, we sell ourselves short of that joyful, abundant life that God desires for us when we pursue the temporary pleasures of sin for a season. Each of us are guilty of that too. And my only hope is that you are encouraged now. I have to pursue it. I, I have to say no to the sinful desires I have and instead say yes to the pleasures of knowing God and to have fellowship that's deep and intimate with Him. Because anything I do that is against His will will only hinder my fellowship with God. You know, some people say, you shouldn't judge, you should only love. Well, if you let someone continue unchecked on their sinful path towards pain and destruction, is that really love? I don't think so. I think love is if you don't let them continue unchecked on their sinful path. And God wants us to love our neighbor. So that was a lot about chapter 18 and 20. I hope you understand as well that what God's standard for sexual purity is. But now, once again, Leviticus isn't only about prohibitions. So here's a couple of things that God actually prescribes instead of proscribes. Number one of the ones that I've picked out at least, in chapter 19, verse 3, we must respect our parents. And in chapter 19, verse 32, we must honor the aged. This is in line with the fifth commandment, those regarding our relationship with others. The first of them is honor your father and your mother. It's a proscription. It's something we are commanded to do. Not something to avoid. We are some commanded to do it. Because there is no authority, the Bible says, except that which God has established. So, God's people show honor to their authorities by submitting to them. And we are commanded to submit to our authorities. That submission is learned in the home first, with our mothers, or by our mothers and fathers teaching us what it means to be in submission. And any rebellion against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Of course, please understand as well that the authorities are responsible to God about how they execute their authority. Parents, you and I, we are responsible to God of how we raise our children and teach them what it means to submit to authority. But notice, too, that the respect must also be given to the elderly. Leviticus 19.30 says, Rise in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. That's important, I think, for all of us to practice. When you're on the bus and someone who's older than you comes on the bus and they need a seat, what should you do? Rise in the presence of the elderly. When it's time to enter a buffet line and everyone crowds around the beginning of the line, what should you do? Honor the aged. And too often as parents, we say children should go first. Well, what are we teaching them then? Right? Are we teaching them Leviticus 19.32? Hopefully, we'll apply this principle to teach our children to respect age. They can't be the first one in line. It isn't their needs that must be met first. Honor the aged. A second thing that the Leviticus commands is to observe the Lord's Sabbaths, to reverence the Lord's sanctuary. There's a bit of a misunderstanding about this because a lot of times people think we're supposed to honor the Saturday. But Sabbath doesn't mean Saturday. Sabbath means rest. The Israelites practiced the rest on the seventh day, 
because God rested on the seventh day after creation. And he commanded them, six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So their rest day was the, Sabbath, was the seventh day. And the cool thing is that when God gives them the Sabbath, he gives them a reason to rest because he rested. And if you're going to be my people, he says, then you're going to rest as well. And no other peoples in Israel's day kept the seventh day as a rest day. The Lord's people did because they identified themselves with him. The creator God in six days he created and on the seventh day he rested. It was a sign that says we are the Lord's people. And what, uh, what's also cool is God makes a promise when he asks his people to rest. He makes sure that they can take a rest from work to ensure that they can accomplish in six days what they thought required seven. Remember the incident about the manna where they were told you're supposed to collect every day. Don't keep any till the next day, it will rot. But on the sixth day, you are to collect for both the sixth day and the seventh day. And guess what? The manna did not rot on that seventh day. When God told them to let the land rest every seventh year. Now imagine in a culture that depends on agriculture. How can you let land rest for an entire year? Where will you get your food? But with that command came a promise. And God said that when you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until harvest of the ninth year comes in. You see, God promised that if you let the land lie fallow, I will make sure that in year six you will have plenty of food both for year six and seven and eight until you need to eat in year nine. Friends, the rest day is a gift from God. And it comes with a promise that he will make sure that we can rest. And I believe it's something that we ought to practice as well. The Sabbath rest isn't commanded in the New Testament, but we do have Jesus' example of how he observed the Sabbath. There are no instructions about the Sabbath from the apostles, but we know that Paul went to the synagogues on the Sabbath to reason with the Jews. He knew they'd be there. But ever since Christ was raised on the first day of the week, Christians have worshipped on Sundays. And so for many Christians, Sunday is a rest day. And I think that's perfectly appropriate. For me, for Austin, Sunday is not a rest day. Okay? Those who are professional ministers, we work on Sundays. The priests in the Old Testament, they worked on Saturdays doing sacrifices. But it's important for us who have to work on Sundays to still take a day off, a day of rest, now, I'm not going to get legalistic about a rest day, but at least in your own life, recognize one day as a rest day because it is God's gift to you. And it comes with a promise. He'll ensure that what you thought would take seven days, you'll only need six days for. Honor Him by the Sabbath, it says. And a third thing that shows God's priority was not only for those who are our parents or the authorities, not only about the rest day, but also in Leviticus 19, verse 9, we must assist the poor. The poor were a priority for God. And so for God's people, they must also be a priority. There are several laws that protect the poor, ensuring they had as many rights as anyone else. He wanted his people to assist the poor by letting them glean from the sides and the edges of their fields, to let them eat from the fields that lay fallow. And it's interesting to note that the poor still had to glean and gather. 
They weren't just handouts for them. They did have to still gather what they would eat. And if the poor was unable to support himself, the Bible says, help him so he can continue to live among you. And it didn't specify what that help constituted. But God wants his people to prosper, his nation to prosper so greatly so that there wouldn't be poor among them. But as long as there are poor, be open-handed and freely lend to him whenever he needs, according to the Bible. So be generous with the poor. The Lord will bless you, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 10, in all of your work and in everything you put your heart to. So there were special rules for priests. And one other thing that's in the book of Leviticus, as you read it, is there are festivals and celebrations. Do you realize that the life of God's people was supposed to be a celebration quite frequently? Yes. Fellowship with God is joyful. There's reasons to be excited and joyful. The year should be filled with celebration and festivals, commemorating the great God that we serve and the great things He has done. Because life among Israelites was supposed to be the good life, the life that God would grant if they would keep His covenant. Now, as I try to come to an end soon, I want us to also understand that there were consequences for not obeying. And some of these consequences are quite severe. And if you read towards the end of Leviticus, you'll notice that God says, if you will not do this, then I will bring upon you that. And if after that you still will not correct your ways, then I will bring upon you this other thing. And if after this other thing you still will not correct your ways, then I will bring this one more thing. What this communicates to me, or what I understand from it, is that God will do what He needs to do to correct us from our wayward ways. Because He loves us so much, He doesn't want us to continue in our wayward ways. The rewards for Israel were certainly attractive for a nation whose prosperity meant living off the land, because if they would obey, they would have seasonal rains, they would have safety and protection, they would have freedom from slavery, they would have an abundance of food. They'd be multiplying fruitfully, they'd have a growing economy, and best of all, in Leviticus 26, 12, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Friends, that is our motivation today, too. If we obey God's will, if we live holy lives, the joy of it all is that God will walk among us. He will be our God, and we will be his people. This fellowship with God is everything that our deepest needs require, and every joy that we so long for in life. There were a variety of disciplinary methods to correct his people's ways. You can read them in your, in your own time. But friends, just like any parent would do, would you let your children go their wayward ways? Is that love? No. Love is correcting your children when they go their wayward ways because you want the best for their life. So as you read the book of Leviticus, please understand this as well. That God isn't just this vengeful, vindictive God. He is a loving God who wants his people to enjoy the good life. And for you and I as Christians, holiness is not optional. Yes, we're under the new covenant in Christ, but it is still necessary for our ongoing fellowship with the holy God. So as we summarize the message today, it's this. That in order to maintain our fellowship with God, we must pursue a life of holiness. To maintain our fellowship with God, we must pursue a life of holiness. And I ask you this, do you want the depth of intimacy 
Do you want the joy of knowing the Lord? Do you want the pleasure of His presence? I do. Then you can't ignore your sinful thoughts or your actions or your attitudes. You cannot remain your old self. Because if you do, then you choose to continue your sinful ways. You will have in your soul a drought. You will have a distance in your prayer life. And your spiritual life, it's just going through the motions. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. So read Leviticus. See God's standards, first of all, for sexual purity. See what His priorities are and be reminded of His persistent love that won't let us go unchecked in our sin. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.vk or facebook.com forward slash FIBCCPH. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.